So welcome to the Anime Podcast. This week it is just uh, two anarchists, intrepid anarchists here today. Uh, myself, Alex. Hello. And James. Hello. Welcome to season two. Yeah. Season who would two have with so many diff- so much difference. <laughs> who would have thought? All the things you like have been removed and all the things you didn't like, there's more of them. <laughs> who would have thought that Jeffrey Epstein's ghost would have been your um, childhood t- Lavatory attendant the whole time. Lavatory attendant, you're really showing your class, aren't you? <laughs> janitor, you fucking upper class twat. Um, this week, uh, what we're going to be talking about is uh, what all the kids on TikTok, I assume that's how you pronounce it, are talking about, which is Stalin and how groovy and cool he was, uh, and the USSR, which I'm here he invented. Um, so yeah, we're going to talk about the USSR, uh, kind of current popular youth i don't know obsession with um by youth i mean just those who are left-wing communists what the ussr actually was we're not going to go into every nook and cranny because it existed for 75 years and it was a complicated thing we're just going to go into basically thing, what was it as in was it socialist what was it not socialist what was it um but more importantly we're going to have just a, a broad discussion there's not going to be as much rules in this um season it seems only fair because we're anarchic, or some of us are anyway. Not me. I'm very formulaic. Um, so yeah, um, James, what do you think of the youth and their love of the USSR and Stalin? I mean, I think broadly, it's it's a post-ironic affectation, and I think it's it's largely a good thing because you know most people do know and understand the. Um, the problems that came with USSR and Stalinism and, you know, it's not oft forgotten. It's just that, you know, like communist propaganda at that time, one, has a really good aesthetic. And second of all, you know, as we're, as we're moving into the 21st century, one of the main things that we're being haunted by is the past again and again. Capitalism starts eating itself more often when it comes to like you know how many films are remakes that are coming out and you know most of the films that aren't remakes are adaptations of comic books that were made for you know 12 year old children back in 1940 whatever so everywhere in culture is looking at the past so you know the left has a right to do it more than anyone else because the past is also where we made our gains and we haven't done very well over the past 34 years, which is the, um, you know, something that comes up in the podcast quite a lot. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, my problem with it beyond the fact that I, I don't know for some people, whether it is kind of a, a jokey thing. I think for most people, it is a post ironic thing. My problem would it be that there's kind of an element of, you know, uh, you know, make the left great again, as it's kind of, and it's nothing to do with, as you said, with the left. I mean, all sorts of people do it, whether it be the 1970s, people were obsessed with the 50s. That's why you have happy days and why you have um, MASH and stuff like that around that time. Uh, and then again, in the 90s, you had that, that 70s show, you know, which turned out to be a, a really a bedrock of horrible people. 
uh, and Laura Crepon. The problem I have with it is that I think there's the long history of it. So for a great, great example, and, and as two people who may well have had Jacobite ancestors, we probably be well to talk about this. There was a huge romanticism and obsession in, in the early 19th century in Ireland and in Scotland for the Jacobites and for, you know, not just Bonnie Prince Charlie and, you know, 1745, but older stuff still than that back to the 1680s, you know. So I think there is that element to romanticize an imagined past and it's dangerous because it's divorced from the reality of that past, you know. Um, so I do have a problem with that. If it is purely just, you know, post-ironic, you know, making fun of things, you know, there's an element of good, of kind of um, positivity about that. I mean, the idea that their people are calling themselves communists, the idea that they talk about let's shoot landlords like Mao did, you know, that's there's a, there's a good thing to that. But I would worry that it's for people who don't really take the time to look at it, they're going to be fooled into that old thing of imagining everything was great in the past, you know? I mean, there's quite a lot of, like, complicated stuff going on. And, you know, not to to drop it on too early, but you know, you're looking at classic hauntology where, you know, it's... I think in some ways it's a good thing because it's, like, it gives you, that like, this idea of, like, a past that you could hold on to where things were better. Because everyone has, like, a sense that things have gone wrong, apart from, you know, maybe, like, a couple of Lib Dems somewhere. But the right spend all their time looking back at the past, and, you know, so does the left. So that really shows you that even though the right are winning, they spend all their time looking backwards thinking it was, you know, better back then. I mean, to go say, like, that, you know, in terms of, like, the, the Jacobite stuff, uh, I know it's tangential, but I mean, they had all the best songs and that is part of the, you know, there's a good reason why they, you know, stuck about in the, the popular imagination because the other side had dog shit folk songs and, you know, like Robbie Burns didn't write a lot of stuff. I mean, he was like, you know, against and pro at different times for the Jacobites, but all, a lot of his best stuff is like pro Jacobian. And it's, it's sort of important to make your own wins mythology because that's how you pass them on over time. And I think if we did that more often, um, and to say the way that Brecht did, in the case of like, you know, he would take things and just effectively just leave out all the bad bits because it was propaganda. And just like, oh yeah, if, you know, the French Revolution was all tickety-boo and it was all good because, you know, the people rised up. You know, he knows fine well, you know, there was bad things about it. Most of the people in the audience know fine well there was bad things about it. But as a piece of propaganda, you know, if it's going to get people to go out and affect change, then, like, it's just, it's important to, to give people that sense, you know? In the same way that, say, like, the Cuban Revolution, you know, there's many bad things that came out of the Cuban Revolution, but it's now seen in the left as a fairly... Uh, progressive thing because you know in the arc of history that's effectively what it is no i agree i i, I think that as long as you're looking at it um in a kind of clear-sighted way it's fine i suppose i would worry that all the lessons learned you know for the 70 odd years that the left who were not pro-stalinist or pro-ussr kind of made really good arguments and against why the, the type of Marxist, Leninist, vanguardist 
ideas would end badly. I mean, Bakunin was talking about it in the fucking 1870s, you know, 50 years before it even happened. So my worry would be that, that you know, in the... It, it's very hard to romanticize... Okay, here's a good example. The Jacobites were a lost cause, you know? The good desire to have a, a Catholic monarch or the, the continuation of the Catholic monarchs on the throne, or at the very least an independent Scotland with the Stuarts as kings, that was a lost cause. It wasn't going to happen. And it, had, it could be romanticized, and it was romanticized wild, widely because it was kind of defanged. It had become this thing that could never happen, and there was something kind of romantic about that. I'm not of the belief that romanticizing Stalinism is a good idea because I think it could happen again. Um, it could very easily happen again, um, especially with the way things are going. As you always say, it's getting spicy at the moment. I could absolutely see, you know, I, again, maybe this is me overreacting. I, I, I kind of, I don't want to sound like those pearl clutching people from Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael who used to complain about um, Jerry Adams posting memes on his Twitter because they say, oh no, this is secretly going to get people in. It's like a gateway drug to Irish republicanism. I don't want to sound like that. I don't think it's that. But I would worry that people are now are getting so far removed from the USSR, from Mao, from Stalin, from the lessons those were learned that were learned at that time, um, that they would be bewitched by the same ideas. If you get me. Um, yeah, there's kind of two things happening there, though. To bring up Jerry Adams is probably a good sort of example. Is you know the same youth in many ways are also lionizing the IRA. You know, like people that are sort of our age and older who have a, a more distinct memory of the troubles, even though, you know, we were still kind of youngish when it finished. Maybe not for me, you know, growing up in Edinburgh, in Edinburgh and only has a sort of like um, background noise to my early life. But I imagine for you, it would have been more prevalent in your day-to-day -day life. People that are now in their 20s or late teens, you know, have less of a memory of the you know the troubles and so you gradually are finding you know the a pro ira sentiment um bubbling back up in irish um pop culture and you know it's partly a good thing and it's partly a bad thing uh for the same reasons you know it's it's a very complicated and multifaceted event where a one book never going to give you like a proper answer like you know battling with it for years and years you'll probably you know go through three or four different opinions on the same event you know some people are forgetting the past for for better or for worse and some of it is to do with you know it pisses off a lot of the worst people imagine if i was 19 and you know the the way that my future had been taken away from me by you know the worst people in this country and the, you know the person that they hate the most is the IRA. Of course, you're going to fucking end up like being pro IRA, and it's, so it's the same with you know with the USSR. A lot of people spend a lot of their time just talking about how much they hate Venezuela, Cuba, and it, Russia, uh, and so you know that you can absolutely piss the fuck out of them by affecting their policies or, you know, their language or um, the way they went about things. No, I, I agree as well. And, and just to say they fucked over your life as well and my life as well. It's not just 19 year olds they fucked over, you know, anyone, anyone who came of age after or indeed was born after 2008, maybe even earlier than that had been fucked over. No, I get it. And there is that urge to be kind of, I don't want to say the left wing 5chan, 
there is an element of there is an element of that there and i get it and that's okay like i i do get that my my kind of thing would be like i would like people to you know be be humorous about it have you know use the memes where um stalin has what's the one <laughs> youthful stalin you know hipster stalin it's fun or a hipster jerry adams as well you know um that's a pretty good it's not really a meme it's more just a photo uh but anyway jerry adams has always been like you know he's a proto hipster in many ways I suppose what we might we should probably talk about what we actually think the the USSR was, and I mean that in the broadest sense of the term. What do you think it was? Uh, good, bad, grey. What you know was it socialist? Wasn't it socialist? We'll obviously tease that out. But what do you think it was? It changed from year to year, effectively over a long period of time. It was something that was always in flux and was often aiming to be somewhere else and then failed to get there. And so it was it was broadly a failure, but I, I think in in some terms that was sort of in like inherent and in some of the ideas that were, you know, the contained in what they wanted to do. But sometimes it was like just a case of outside forces or happenstance that forced it to go down different avenues as well. Yeah, no, I I would agree with that. I I think it's hard not to say that looking at it, what it was, that so much of it was baked in there from the beginning in terms of uh, the vanguardist idea. I mean, Lenin had such unbelievable control over his rather small party, the Bolsheviks, that he kind of obviously laid the groundwork for the Stalins and for the Brezhnevs. Well, Stalin being much, much worse than Brezhnev, but yeah. uh, they came afterwards. And the type of fear he instilled, the same fear, the fear that was instilled by Stalin and, and the apparatchiks afterwards, allowed an economy that was a command-controlled economy to never really have a clear idea of what it was doing. I mean, so many of the records from that time were falsified. So many of the... Because they were terrified if they didn't meet their five-year plans, if they didn't meet their targets... That they would be killed or they'd be they'd lose their job anyway. It's very hard to know. I mean, we know that by the by, by 1970, which is about the peak of where they got economically, they were about second in the world after the USA in like nominal terms. They were about the living standards were about half that of America in 1970, and America had relatively high standard of living at the time. Now that if we believe it, it was still a great achievement. Uh, certainly coming from where Russia was before World War One, it was just, it was not far off a feudal um, society. It was pretty much a feudal society and it's with subsistence living for most of the population. So that was not that was an amazing thing. Um, but it came at a cost, you know, both in the Stalin years and whatever. So yeah, I, I do think there's things to be learned from it. I, I, I think that the left has to basically take the USSR and China as well, Maoist China, because, you know, two sides of the same arse cheek, uh, as, a, as a cautionary lesson um, that this is what can happen if you go in with the wrong ideas. If you have these windows of opportunity, by all means, I, I would never take away from the Bolsheviks that they really seized that opportunity in 1917. And because the anarchists weren't, you know, I, and that's a, the, a big failing of anarchism is the inability to seize these types of opportunities uh, because of uh, just, again, having too many principles, uh, which your enemies don't have and your, 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 
Uh, the Bolsheviks don't have didn't have those principles, and they they seize power. Same with Mao as well. I think that's the biggest failing of anarchists, and one of the reasons they have some good songs. <laughs> Again, the lost causes thing is there. But anyway, yeah. So I I think they had those the the problems with the USSR were baked in there from the beginning. I'm going to make the point that I think they were a, a state capitalist society that they weren't really socialist. That's going to be my point going forward. It depends at what point in its gestation or in the time period you're talking about in those, you know, 75, 80 years, if it was a state capitalist or, or not. Um, I mean, in, in many ways, um, you know, it gets said, which I think is a, is a good point, but, what we're living through now is just Soviet Russia, but more expensive and shit in terms of capitalism has a stranglehold on, you know, the poor, but the rich pretty much get to do as they wish when it comes to, you know, running a country or um, beyond. You know what I mean? No, I do. But I think that could be, you could have an argument there. And, and some of the readings we were, when we were researching this, there is an argument to be made that, you know, the type of state capitalism that you know emerged in some countries in the late 19th century mainly just germany and then in in russia in the 1930s and certainly onwards beyond that it's starting to happen here in a slightly different form you have monopoly capitalism where huge conglomerates have come together and have basically seized state power you know and so yeah. that any t- and, and that includes media outlets as well they have seized state power um and that in societies run in this type of authoritarian way through, you know, via these kind of massive conglomerates. Whereas in Russia, or with the USSR, you had a kind of the party. The party kind of became, you know, everything. It became the banks. It became the, the conglomerates. They had their own enterprises rather than uh, kind of companies. They had um, various departments that ran the economy. Um, and they still were able, in the end, to get the 99% of the population that weren't in the party, who were the working class in, in Russia, to be, you know, you know, they didn't even have the opportunity to leave work. I mean, there's some evidence that they might have done it surreptitiously, but they, could, they you know, literally couldn't even leave work. They were almost, they were worse than wage slaves. So, yeah, I, I, I think that there's a lot of similarities now between what the USSR was, say, after the 50s and 60s, and what uh, we're living through now. But that's because there's just so much power in the hands of a, of a tiny group. And whether it was the party in, in, in the USSR or whether it's the capitalist class over here, you know, it's like that. It's like I don't want to I don't want to be the asshole to be the first asshole who mentions Animal Farm. But at the end, the pigs are rolling up uh, cigars and smoking them with the farmers, you know. I'm going to gulag you for an Orwell reference. Um, this is an Orwell-free podcast, sir. I mean, what you're saying there about um, people not being able to leave work, I haven't actually heard that before. There was something a couple of weeks ago that I was watching where Chomsky was effectively saying that there's things that happen in America now that Stalin could never dream of getting away with. And it was, you know, his example was something like a pee break. He was saying, like, you know, the 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 way that things worked in Soviet Russia, you would never even, um, like, you wouldn't be able to stop someone, you know, from going like, oh, I need to go for a slash, and then going off and taking one, because you know, workers' rights were at least, you know, outside of a gulag, enriched in some ways. 
But, uh, but you know, the point of the Gulag partially was to provide a, a, sl a slave labor supply. There was about 20 million people in them at one point. So that, that does help the economy if you have 20 million slaves. Yeah, exactly. But then, you know, my, my response to that is you shouldn't have done anything that would have got you into the Gulag in the first place. You should have just been, you know, loyal to the communist cause. Are you saying this in a kind of ironic way because this is what you would have had to say at the time to not get put in the gulag? Uh, yeah, I, I can neither confirm nor deny. <laughs> From what I've read, and again, people who listen to this, if they have alternative evidence, feel free to I don't know, put it on Twitter. Uh, <laughs> everyone listens to stuff on Twitter. Um, but from what I'm aware, that the way things were, because they were organized from the top down, that once you had, again, you'd, you'd got the training you needed, or if you were an unskilled worker, you'd be appointed a job effectively. But if you'd gone through training as an engineer or whatever, you'd be assigned work, and that's it. You couldn't move. You certainly couldn't quit. Um, there was no unions. You could not organize yourselves collectively. Um, workers' rights, you know, is the word or the phrase they used, but it was, you know, the state dictating um, how things were. You know, people were closer to serfs, really. Um, so, I mean, I may agree that if right now the situation was similar, and in many ways it's, it is, you know, uh, it's similar in the sense that it's very hard for a lot of people to, to change job um, if they don't like it. You know, they have to go through months, maybe even years, of you know a shitty work environment and the same type of authoritarian as you said people in in um what's it called it uh amazon can't take pee breaks you know or or, or discouraged from doing so you know even that you know you were allowed pee breaks at work um and in the individual factories you know things could be fine like much like and i suppose horrible thing to say on some some plantations i imagine and in the old south there must have been some nice people but overall it wasn't that way you know overall it was a grinding experience but at least up until the you know the late 70s and certainly the late 80s there was a degree of comfort that came with that you had health care you had education you had a flat you had a home um again it depended on where you were in the ussr they weren't all nice flats and they weren't all nice homes but overall there was a there was a the reason why it survived as long as it did with all the violence that came with it was that there was a standard of life that was protected. Like you accepted, okay, look, life was really, really shit before the, the, you know, the communist party, but look, we have a car, I've got a job that's protected. And I think maybe part of the reason why people are looking back on that fondly is because they say, look, we already live in a society where there is no democracy, not real democracy, no real workers control. Why not, you know, and may, maybe people are very upfront about it. The USSR was shit, but there was a kind of um, a ceiling on human suffering, you know, outside of, oh, well, outside of Stalin's years, there's a ceiling for human suffering. Yeah, my vote doesn't count, but my vote doesn't count now. At least back then they had a car and a flat and healthcare, you know? Yeah, exactly. I mean, and some of it is to do with like what side you would have been on as well. I, I imagine that, you know, a good chunk of us, even as anarchists, when it came to, you know, the five-year plan, <laughs> which side we'd be on, because we've got the cultural capital to be like, eh, actually, no, I'm, I'm with Stalin on this one. Smart enough to throw other people under the bus and not get gulagged yourself. And, it, you know, it would be fun to just, um, uh, at Christmas dinner, when, you know, your your mad racist uncle starts wittering away whatever, like, QAnon shit that he's got this year, if you could just, like, phone up the Stasi and just be like, ah, yeah, he's uh, he said something bad about Stalin. 
and then just come and take them away. You know, it has its its cultural benefits in that sense. It also, you know, there's all, something I, I I wrote for the website. I think it was a year or two ago now. Uh, which was the cult of the proletariat, which was about the kind of the cult-like tendencies that, that come out of these types of parties. You know, there's always a kind of a rigid top-down leadership stru- uh, structure. The people below, a bit like you were saying there, you know, you know there's, a, there's a tendency to want to snitch, to rash. Uh, on those who are who are getting maybe more attention or are paying the ass, you know, I do think there's that element to which you can have a whole other podcast about that about about cults and uh, and the left. God knows we've I've, we've been <laughs> collectively we've been in a few left wing organizations, and they're all cults and they all behave like bizarrely. Maybe that's a human failing rather than a left wing failing. But yeah, no, I, I I I you know I, I do understand the. That if we lived at the time, you know, our, we would have had maybe had different views. I know plenty of anarchists, uh, historically speaking, who couldn't um, denounce, you know, Stalin at the time. Even Trotsky said, you know, just because me and you know, Hit, you know, Hitler and I share uh, certain views of the USSR together, doesn't mean, you know, I'm wrong because we agree. It's it's just so palpably obvious what the USSR was of the, uh, for people who were paying attention. So, you know, I, I think um, as to what it was, um, to go back to the point I, me- I was mentioning earlier, I think if you are, a, if you have a society where workers still have to sell their labor to get wages, in this case of money, to buy everything in their life, and there was still rent, you know, at the time, I don't really understand what people see that's so progressive or so radical yeah, about the USSR. Again, I, I, I acknowledge that in terms of healthcare and and education and 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 provision of housing, that's good. But you could have had that in Sweden. You could have had that in Norway. You could have that in Denmark and even West Germany. So the question as to what exactly about the USSR, other than uh, what it said it was, that's something we should um, um, think is progressive or good. Um, yeah, and again, but beyond the kind of the TikTok five, the left wing five chan thing of just wanting to piss off your granddad. Which is fun, but as an actual kind of, if you want to put together a program of ideas about what about the past was good, can we bring it to the forward? The USSR, there's not a huge amount of things there that's that's worth looking at, uh, other than they got some really good Red Army choir tunes. I think that they faced the same problem that we face now, which is like a good chunk of the population had a lot of skin in the game, and they didn't want to see that go. So how many people in the UK and Ireland are... Um, homeowners and how many people in you know pre-soviet russia owned land and had you know this amount of power etc etc the the main thing that you know i've been thinking about in lockdown is how do you negotiate the relinquish the the like taking the reins away from power in terms of like people that own homes so there's someone who owns owns three homes um, how do you get them to give up two of them? Um, so you know, there's there's two people that can can you know live in a home. You know, something in Ireland that's like a ridiculous figure, which is like for every um, homeless person, there's like you know twenty vacant homes. So you know, if we were to say you know let's do a, a coup in Ireland, let's say we've got the people tomorrow to do it. Then it, what? How do you get them to, you know, give up those houses? And 
what history would seem to tell you is that you you force them to do it because they're not going to do it you know on their own you don't ask them nicely because when you ask them nicely they just tell you to, to get fucked no i agree um i think i mean stalin and now famous just shot all the landlords and uh or well, shot it slash worked them to death um no, I, I, but the same is also true if you go back into the 18th and 17th century in Britain and in Ireland in terms of the dispossession of peasantry, the taking of common land, which was seen by most people and, and had been since the feudal times, the community's land, you know, that was a seizure of land. It was um, Before that, in the 1500s in England and in Scotland as well, they seized all the church land because, of course, the Catholic Church was no longer the, the dominant kind of thing so i mean and for hundreds of years they took human beings from africa made them property sold them took their worked them to death and took their product of their goods cotton and made the industrial revolution so we're not going to pretend that historically speaking this hasn't been going on for a very long time and that for capitalist class for the ownership class it hasn't been you know infinitesimally more advantageous they've say, taken much more land they've seized much more value and capital of people so i do i do get it I, I think if you go in if you have a revolutionary situation or if you're trying to make an argument for these things you have to say look um i'm have no problem and even the us has already even said this with individual property you can have your flat you can have your home but once you start making money off homes in the same way you, you start making capital from it i think that's the problem and i i do think you can make an argument they're not in this, not right now, and certainly not on the media right now, that kind of the type of private property that allows you to be a millionaire or a billionaire and off the backs of other people is is morally wrong. And you always like to bring it back to morality. And I do think it's actually much more powerful. I think we said it in the last episode of last season, to try and make a moral argument because people, I think, function more on that level than they do in a factual basis. Like if you, if I laid down a million reasons why factually why that this was wrong that the amount of money being hoarded was wrong they you people would find it difficult to understand that whereas if you said look it's just wrong to to have a person that's homeless if there's at least 20 homes if not thousands of homes hundreds of thousands of homes in just ireland there are that are vacant you know i think you can make that argument better um so yeah, and, and then after you make that argument, there'll be an element of, yeah, well, I don't care if you're 20% or 15% of the population. The other 85 of us have decided, okay, you know, you don't need five houses. So yeah, I think there's, there's inevitably coercion will be necessary. It's just how does that coercion function? How many people, you know, are supportive of doing that as opposed to just the aristocracy or the party elision? In Russia, back when they did it to Ukraine in the 30s, you know, in terms of collectivizing the land, you know, millions of people died in the process. And Stalin said they were traitors, they were fighting against the, the progression of the revolution. We don't want to do that. But I think, in, you know, in terms of, say, why the, you know, Soviet Russia is fetishized is that who doesn't want to kill the landlord, you know? So, you know, if, you, if you're in a shit situation and you're going to be in there foreseeable because you know most of your money that you make from a wage you know um producing something that your boss is going to get more money out of you do and then most of that is taken away from a landlord like a lot of people 
like would be happier say under the early years of stalinism just because you know at least some landlords will fucking get what's coming to them let's get to that you know when it, this is why i would say you know i don't think that accelerationism is a is a great idea because you just make people more incoherently violent because if you can just take it out on the people that are causing you know the, this pain and they you know they definitely are and they do have it fucking coming then why don't you just actually do it you know like i don't see a situation now or in the foreseeable future where you know something like social democracy is going to um take hold because you know as we saw with corbyn and um and Sanders and anyone, you know, as piss weak left as that, you know, how ruthlessly they'll try and stamp down on it. So what's your other option? You don't have any other than, you know, violence. You know, if you get to see your landlord in a mass grave at the same time, like, fuck them. They, it's their choices that got them here. That's what people feel because it's the, the culture that has been made for them because sanctity of life is so non-existent in you know western capitalism no i i agree with most of that but and this kind of feeds into the general question of the of the of the podcast there are views of what the ussr was by even trotsky and trotsky is a great example of somebody who uh was maybe removed from office at the right time and has been kind of fetishized in the way he was killed ice picked to the eye by um, on Stalin's order, um, you know, he he would have taken the view that there were it, that the USSR wasn't a state capitalist society. It was he said it was somewhere between a capitalist and a so it was in a transformation transformative stage, and he said everything pretty much that happened up to the time he was removed from office was fine. Like that, you know, the, the civil war. He was a major part of why. The, the Bolsheviks won that, you know, and there's, uh, he's also, you know, the person who sends the troops in into Kronstadt and, and crushes, crushes the anarchists in Ukraine. So, I mean, he has that part of himself as well. But he, his view would have been that the type of things you were talking about, you know, the, the targeting of a landlord, collectivization, that's all good, that's fine, but, and for landlords, they deserve it. Um, but his view would have been that, you know, okay, the problem with the USSR was Stalin, and the problem, problem with the USSR is a small group of people. I would be of the view that it, that certainly they were a problem, but it was much more, you know, baked in from the beginning. So maybe to well, I'd like to hear your opinion on. Do you think he is right about that? It was just a, it was a couple of bad bad eggs near the top, or was it something that just from the beginning had those problems there? And and Trotsky was part of it. Yeah, no, for sure. I think it is like as you're saying, it's baked into the very DNA of it. But in some ways, it's like we know that now because we've seen the USSR fail in the way that it did and other um, communist countries fail in the way that they did. And it's, you know, it's your thing, you know, you've got a bloody tattoo about it, which is, you know, fail better. Uh, who was it that said that again? Samuel Beckett. Samuel Beckett, yeah. So I think it's like, it's always you have to put your yourself into their shoes and it's easy for us to say with hindsight you know this is what you should and shouldn't have done um and some of them like for a fucking sure for instance you know the way that um 
the Russian Revolution kicked off and the way that they treated anarchists after, even though, you know, how many um, battles did the anarchists win and, you know, the Russian Revolution when it came down to, you know, fighting people in the street, they took buildings, et cetera, et cetera. Even in the, uh, the Russian Civil War, you know, the way the anarchists' battalions were effectively on the, you know, on, on the right side of it. And so, you know, that shows you in some ways, you know, where the problems lie very early on. But in other ways, as a, as a country or, you know, a small group of people, which is every revolution has been, when you sort of enact these um, situations, then you, you know, maybe now we would know better, but, you know, back in the, in the, in the 1910s, to then suddenly have like every country in the world suddenly turn around and be against you and doing everything that they can to undermine you. Like, yeah, that causes you to, to act out in weird ways in the same way that happened in the, you know, the, the French Revolution. No, I agree, and that's a, and a good comparison. The coming to power of Napoleon, the coming to power of Stalin—that's um, a very good comparison. Another good comparison would be the English Revolution and the coming to power of Cromwell. And I'll, I mean, it, there is a history of it, you know, or Julius you know, Julius Kaiser to pronounce his surname properly. Um, and then you're right; it, it is easy to, in hindsight, see all these things. And so, basically, what I'm going to summarize of your what you've said there is that you don't think it was as thought out at any point that okay what well, you know we're going to degenerate you know it was just a transition you know the ussr was in a transitionary stage for x amount of years and but it fluctuated versus its state capitalism you think it's just that it, it was never that thought out that they seized upon the opportunities the things that happened happened um rather than there's just a big grand conspiracy because like some anarchists certainly chomsky has said that the ussr marxist leninism was a right-wing deviation and that this is always kind of what they were looking for to some degree. But you'd say, no, it wasn't that thought out and that it just developed this way because of lots of reasons, really. Yeah, exactly. By the time you get to the 70s, and I think, you know, they are saying like, look, you know, some people are going, we're not a, a communist country and we want to move into one. And I think, you know, lots of people genuinely wanted to do that and for various reasons they couldn't and again it comes down down to like you know sometimes it was a quirk of history other times it was because of the way that the system had been set up and they were unwilling to dismantle those mechanisms to move forward maybe another question would be um we should ask ourselves is as anarchists has left us now if we're going to be in some way interacting with the ideas of the USSR, what they did wrong, what they did right, what they did one or the other, neither one nor the other. What is it we can learn from that? Um, and I don't mean, you know, never trust uh, Marxist-Leninists because there's too many tankies in Dublin. There's, you know, there's, there's too many people who would in some way believe in the ideas of the Vanguard Party, whether it be in the uh, Socialist Workers Party, who have a front group called People for Four Profit, whether it be the Socialist Party, who have a front group called Solidarity, whether it be the splinters from that, people like Claire Daly and, um, what's his name, Paul Murphy, they're all from the same school of thinking. Even some people in the, the Labour Party, which is probably why they're so authoritarian, think came out of that, that, that belief system as well. We can't not engage with them. We can't not have something to do with them because of something that happened uh, under a different group of people using a different language 100 years ago. 
So how do we be realistic about this, in your opinion, and in my opinion after that? <laughs> uh, how do we be realistic about uh, talking about the USSR now, learning from it, but not alienating people who are probably coming into it from the best, uh, you know, with the best ideas possible, with the best morality possible, thinking that this is a good idea, you know? I mean, I, this has been a sort of weirdly Chomsky-heavy idea podcast, but he's got a good point, which is, you know, you take it on a base-to-base -base case. It's not an all or nothing. When it comes to, say, something like people before profit, like, yeah, they've got some good ideas and they've got some absolutely fucking dog shit ideas and sometimes they don't know when to just shut the fuck up and let someone else talk they've got a base that they can galvanize and so it's about you know opening communications if the left could just sometimes get over itself and agree to you know capitulations here and there then we could probably go forward in some ways but how you do that i don't know because there's there's so much bad blood in one way or the other i mean I'm angry about things that I only found out like two or three weeks ago in terms of like, you know, say when we were doing the the research for the podcast on World War Two and finding out about Italy, like left wing regiments were sending, you know, like a communist commander sent over an anarchist brigade across a, a bridge to get shelled first. So then the, the, the communist brigade would come in after and not get shelled. Like, I am now effectively holding that against every communist now who, like, most of them will have no fucking idea that ever happened. And so, yeah, the left unity thing is something that's going to have to start being pushed forward because we've been losing quite coherently for quite a long time now. But I, I think that's something that is more, which is predates the USSR by a long shot. I think the problem with the left has always been, maybe it always will be, I hope it will always be, that we behave, that the left behaves much more like a religion and less like a political movement. And so people who disagree with you cease to be just people who disagree with you and they become apostates or they become heretics. They're blasphemers, you know? And I think that doesn't help. I, I think the right, apart from maybe, you know, Hitler, <laughs> or, you know, one of the other kind of fascist dictators, they didn't have, they've never had the same problem. They've always been able to subsume a lot of that. A great example would be the Republican Party in America. You know, for a while they were all against Trump, but once they realized he was going to win, which was much earlier than most people realized, they completely lined up behind him. And they've been able to get some of the things they wanted, tax cuts and whatever, and block him on certain things. The left, um, it's not Biden is in many ways comparable if but we don't have any <laughs> the difference would be is that we don't have uh, actually the support of the uh, Democratic parties and the left wing party uh, this is this is analogy is falling apart <laughs> but you know what I mean the point is we've never been able to be, be cohesive enough because we're so riven by these sectarian ideas okay this is exactly what the left is socialism is this it can't in any way be um, I don't know. There can't be any type of compromise on that. There can, and and there is compromise. It's 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 heresy, you know. And I think as long as we think like that, we will remain it segmented into little sects, and we're never going to be able to horrible phrase that's very Leninist phrase, but seize power, take power in a kind of 
I believe that hopefully in a democratic way, but taking power is still taking power, you know? Part of the reason for that is that the left-wing um, ideology is a much bigger church um, than the right. Uh, part of that is just because, you know, left-wing ideas, they're more thought out a lot of the time. They've actually got, you know, books and uh, theorists and actual whole branches of philosophy dedicated to them, where what does the right have? It's not a lot. It's about Ayn Rand and some libertarians, like, trying to diddle some kids. They don't have a lot of, like, literature. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> they've got Mein Kampf and Atlas Shrugged. And that's about it. Uh, well, that in the Daily Mail every day, I guess. But, you know, they've got that and we've got, you know, the we're striving for utopia. So we've always, you know, there's different ways to try and achieve that. And, yeah, in some ways, you do have to make your red lines because, say, like how many left-wing movements have been undercut by sexism or racism where... In the long run, that's gone a long way to actually why it didn't work as a as a movement. The flip side to that is sometimes the the personal politics gets in the way of like larger systemic politics. So you know, someone who is probably you know a good left wing person like misspeaks or gets something wrong or didn't understand this or like you know uses the wrong word, and then for lots of people, that's them. They're gone. Like, you're never going to listen to them again. And they're going to be, you know, completely shut out. And so even if they had the best idea in the world, it doesn't matter because, you know, they they did this thing or they said that thing. Uh, And sometimes, yeah, maybe that is right as well. It comes down to where power is based as well. And the reason that, say, cancel culture has become the forefront of... Um, leftist politics is because that's the only place that we've got any power you know come um, neoliberalism that was it like you know PC culture started in the 80s because well it didn't start in the 80s but you know what I mean Um, and so you know comedians and um, bands could say like you know we're not we're we want to get rid of this old racist sexist stuff and try and make a fairer society because that's the only power that they had, because you would still get something like Alexi Sale on, you know, the BBC in the 80s, or, you know, you'd have the early movement of punk, etc, etc. That's the only power that we've had for 30 years. And so it's just a lot of the time we're doubled down on that. So instead of actually, like, going out into the street and fucking doing something, which, you know, is now starting to happen a lot more than it has, especially since, you say, like, Occupy Wall Street. No matter what you thought of that as a movement, at least it was, you know, someone doing something or say, you know, Chaz, we all knew it was going to be a failure for the various reasons. But, you know, hey, at least they got out of their fucking house and did something. We can't always just be sitting around getting pissy at Picasso, who's been dead for fucking how long? It doesn't fucking matter if Picasso was a nonce or not. There's no point cancelling Picasso. He doesn't matter. He's a gone thing. Like, why are you trying to cancel someone like Frida Carlo? She doesn't matter. She's been dead. Get off Twitter and actually go in the street, join IWW, do something. That's a very subtle plug there. Um, <laughs> but no, I, I agree. I mean, I agree with all of that. I, I think it plays into that type of quote-unquote cancel culture, and I'm using quotation marks, 
is you know it's very it has a, a, a kind of an element of almost the covenanters about them about it you know this type of rigid kind of a, extremist edge but the, but the covenanters other than the time they were in power when they weren't before and certainly the few of them that were left in the wilderness in the 1660s and 1670s for anyone who doesn't know what the who the covenanters are just google it it's on wikipedia you know you know there were presbyterian extremists but they were you know yelling and screaming at that all sort all these perceived you know wrongs of these people you know the pope is the you know the antichrist whatever they were basically Sinead O'Connor I mean if you think the Pope is the enemy the ultimate uh, goal is to become you know Sharia that's a good point yeah um, but you know I, I think that the, the lessons of the USSR if there are lessons to be learned uh, are that the left does have to function as a broad church and I do mean that with standing, unfortunately, with people who may well have Stalinist leanings, because in the end, unless there's kind of that type of, I'm not going to, for people who might be listening to this and thinking, don't say that I don't want to be a member of a broad church because I've been in a broad church like the Labour Party in the UK. You know, there's different situations by, by broad church, I don't mean under the same political party. But if we have the same goal of overturning, of, of changing the system, of removing capitalism, that might well mean subsuming some of our um, beliefs or principles in the short term to achieve something in, in, in the longer term. Now, that, that does not mean we bend our principles sufficiently that we allow the type of things that Stalin did and believed in. Um, but it might mean what Lenin did in the 20s. He brought in what was called the new economic policy. And other than what he called the heights of the economy, he allowed some degree of capitalism basically on some elements of the society not the commanding heights not the majority of the economy but i think things like that or you know taking uh, seizing property private property from from people who might have three houses i'm well sorry too bad you know that that but equally decentralizing things trying to find a way to balance it there's never going to be a situation where just anarchists or just stalinist communists socialists whatever you want to call are going to you know, take power by themselves. And if they do, we'd probably be somewhat worried about that. You know, it, you know, it seems unlikely, though. I think you have to the left. It's very the lessons of the USSR is is trying to find a way to work together, trying to get beyond sectarianism. Otherwise, we just sound like weirdos yelling at Frida Kahlo. Or, you know, there was a great joke. But it was a comedian. And he said, um, tell you what, though, I, I really like the Stalin guy until, until I learned that um, didn't really like women. That changed my opinion of that guy. <laughs> but, you know, it's I, I think you can... The, the lesson from the USSR is maybe less about, you know, the things that all anarchists always talk about and more about, well, well, we have to find a way to make this an actual political movement, not a fucking church. Otherwise, we're just going to end up repeating the same things, the same type of revolutions to end up to be in inquisitions or at best will be the, 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 the crazy people in the wilderness yelling... Um, about heresy, you know? There's sometimes, though, you've got to say, oh, yeah, I mean, it wasn't nice, but it was also, like, required. So something like, you know, the Kulaks, they fucking had it coming. They forced Stalin's hand. And it's the same with, say, like, the terror as well, where, you know, if a lot of people just got in line, then, you know, they wouldn't have got their heads chopped off. That then starts to steamroll, though. 
where it's like, well, you know, who is the enemy? Then, you know, more like Stalin then goes like, this is a Kulak to this is a Kulak to this is a Kulak. And then suddenly, you know, anyone with two pigs is a Kulak, you know, then you're going out of bounds. But everything is a psyop. Everything's a, yeah. everything's a Kulak, everything's a psyop. Like, I think the main the main thing that we have to, as a left, start discussing on a, on a, on a broad term is how far are you willing to take it? How are you going to sanitize the things that are going to have to happen? Because, you know, th- the moralist argument is broadly good. And, you know, I think it's, it's a fine thing. But at some point, morals sort of have to go out of the window. Because if you're then doing this, like... Oh yeah, well, you know, we we want to have this like, you know, this revolution without bloodshed. Where has that worked? I you know we we really need to do like an episode about, you know, Chile in terms of oh yeah, here we go, here's a communist country, and then just watch as capital defends itself in the most violent way possible, and then suddenly you end up with a dictatorship, you know? And so I've yet to hear anything that's close to uh, a reasonable social democratic idea of how you wrestle power from the people that already have it and i think that's the you know the main lesson that we should take from the ussr is that sometimes a romanov just needs to get shot yo no i agree and 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 there is that's always been the the poles of debate in in i could go all the way back to the charchists back in the 1840s and 1830s between whether moral force Basically, the perception that people like um, Gandhi, um, well, we won't go into too much about Gandhi, but the idea of using only peaceful means or you know civil disobedience versus armed kind of rebellion. I, and I do think it, 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 it's more, I would see it more of like a tactical thing. What, what circumstances uh, can, you know, warrant if you, you know, if you are living in a police state, which was what the USSR became by the end, you know, going up against the military force of the USSR, you were not going to be able to overthrow it. So therefore, something more along the lines of moral force were necessary. Maybe also the case with the, with the USA. You know, it's such a heavily armed society that I don't know if going against it militarily is a good idea. Moral force has seems to have more uh, of a chance. But, you know, that's just those two societies, the two former, you know, two former superpowers. Um it's not the case, same case everywhere, you know, whether it be Britain, whether it be Ireland, whether it be France, you name it, every society is different and use different things. But certainly in the end, the state uh, or rather the capitalist class, the ownership class will resort, as we always say, to, to fascism, will pretty much resort to any means to maintain its control. And at that point, you're right to say that if you are in possession of, of if you are held back, let's just say, by your morals so that you or your principles so that you don't make compromises and sometimes very hard and unpleasant compromises, um, then you're going to end up either with the status quo, which is things have changed, not an iota, um, or you're going to end up with something much, much worse, which is either fascism or whatever else. So, yeah, I think maybe it's you're right that the the left needs to an anarchist because that's where we're coming from and left communists need to start finding a way to communicate <laughs> uh, with each other and with, 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 with tankies. I know we make fun of tankies and, and we should make fun of tankies. Uh, you know, and you should be angry at the, at the tankies, the, the communists that sent uh, an anarchist brigade off to be killed. But, 
you know, they're also the people who we have most in common with in terms of what, at least in principle, we want to achieve. Unless we talk to them and find a way to get to, I don't know, be agnostic about the USSR. <laughs> like, it's like, let's agree to disagree on what that was, you know? But we don't, you know, so let's just talk about what, what type of society. Like, I'm a communist. I want that society too. Um, I'm just not i'm a bit more specific about how we get there you know what the transitionary stage is but we can talk about that like yeah you know we don't need to fucking go on about crunch stuff don't need to go on about these things that happened in the 40s or happened whenever in the 50s and 60s we have to find a way to talk uh going forward have some type of communication you know you know to kind of almost change the the first point i made Maybe it's good that there's these memes about Stalin, that there's these memes about Mao, that we're talking about shooting landlords. <laughs> because maybe it says we're trying to put that, we have kind of compartmentalized that part of the past. Now, I still think we should talk about it, but I, I, do, I do don't, I, I, at this point, I don't think it's, it's worth the left's time to be accusing each other of things that happened 30, 40 years ago. And maybe that includes pointing the finger at people who had a dad in the IRA. I, I really, at this point, I don't see how it's going to help us. Like, there's too much shit that's gone wrong. There's too, literally the, you know, the, fa- the face of the species, uh, that sounds melodramatic, but it is. I mean, anyone paying attention to what's going on with the environment, it is the fucking fate of the species at this point. We don't have time to be fucking the people, to, to Jay and people's front and the people's front to Judea. There's, there's no more time for that. It, it you know, um, we have to kind of put it behind us, but at the same time, I don't know. You know what I mean? Like, there's got to be a way to no longer dwell on these these things, but at the same time, learn the lessons from them. But yeah, no, I know exactly where you're coming from. This should be like the beginning of every news segment and the end of every news segment should start and end with, um, oh yeah, we've only got about, oh, I don't know, about five, six years of functioning climate left, even if that. So we should probably be doing something about that. So it's like, oh, in the news today, there's a recession, but it doesn't really fucking matter because money's invented. Also, uh, we've only got three years of climate left. So maybe we should be doing something about that rather than talking about imaginary money. I think there's no better way to end a podcast about the USSR. I think we kind of covered a lot of the main points. I suppose I'm somewhat worried that the, the left doesn't have the capability uh, to do what it needs to do for the same reasons we were talking about, that kind of religious, um, holier-than-thou-ness. Um, but and in which case, we're going to be left with a situation where someone amongst the left, maybe a, a Lenin-like figure, does step forward. And, and I, I don't know, I, I, I think, as you said earlier, I find it hard to know how well I would, I would behave at a, you know, were that to happen. I think, I, you know, my, my patience with the left's um, self-indulgence is starting to um, ebb. You know what I mean? I do know what you mean. It's like Jeremy Corbyn would be a good example of, like, you know, look at how many elements of the left just got behind them, even though we didn't think it was a good idea. You know, like, when we were still living together in Edinburgh way back in the day, you know, and Jeremy Corbyn first became the the labor leader like we both just like wrote him off completely which you know it turns out was that was the right initial um feeling but you know over time me more than you i guess but you know sort of worn down like i suspended my disbelief 
to get behind Corbyn because that's what needed to happen. I was willing to make that sacrifice on my principles to hope that, you know, to make a point where it's like, look, I don't think it's going to happen, uh, you know, for a long time. And then I'm like, right, I will actually, this seems like it's a goer. I can get behind them and step one is getting Corbyn in. The second step is to actually start holding them to account because, you know, you know what happens when a, a sort of hardly left-wing government gets into power. You know, and that was misfounded. What I really want is that people have learned a lesson from that. From my understanding, not a lot of people have done. There's still, I hate to say it, and it's such a right-wing talking point, but Corbyn is a cult of personality. How? I don't know. Because he's got no personality. But he's got that cult of personality that, you know, the say about Stalin. And they're fucking right. They've got us bang to right on that one. Well, not me and you personally, but, you know, a lot of people on the left. We're now, we'd be in a situation, if Corbyn left Labour tomorrow, like, lots of people would just go back to being like, oh, well, let's just get Corbyn in, and then that'll solve all of our problems somehow, rather than actually the, the approaches that would change the systemic situations that we're in. But equally, just to kind of, a, as a counterpoint, if somebody gained power who kind of afterwards, instead of revealing themselves to be right-wing, which seems much more likely, uh, or indeed never gets elected, if somebody did, this is my, my hypothetical, I would find it very hard if, if a figure who came to power, I don't know, in France, France is a good example. Say it was um, Mélenchon, I think that's how, how you pronounce his name. He got like 25% in the starter French elections a couple of years ago. There's a decent chance he, he might, in a, in a crisis situation, become president, you know? So he became president and he started um, nationalizing industries more than they already are nationalized or began, you know, an actual program and then said, look, no, I don't care about what you say. We're, we're, this is what we're doing. I, I don't know. I, I, I would find it hard in that circumstance, given how rare a thing that would be. So maybe I, you know, I do understand that uh, when we were talking about the USSR, just in general, that one's patience is part of it as well. I mean, I doubt, in fact, I know for a fact that Trotsky was not a big fan of Lenin early on, but as time wore on and more and more horrible things mounted up, he must have at some point gone, this is a real thing, a bit like you with, with Corbyn, this is a goer and I'm just going to try and make it work. And I do think that anarchists and left communists and libertarian, whatever you want to call us, we're going to face that. Um, in the future, there's going to be um, a situation where, however exactly it happens, we're going to have to say, look, I'm either going to go in on this and it's going to be difficult, but at least I might get something from it and we might survive as a fucking species. Um, but it will mean me getting my hands dirty. And I, and I do mean that in a very unpleasant way. And I suppose we'll have to wait and see how that plays out. But if anything, the, the, this pandemic and what's happened around it has only increase the speed at which the the world is changing so i don't i don't necessarily think that we're far off from something like that um i think people are who think we're going back to what life was like beforehand haven't understood the 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 the, the, the enormity of the change that's that's happened already you know yeah exactly i feel that's a good place to to leave it it's been a conversation about the ussr where we haven't talked about soviet russia at all so. yes we have we talked about it quite a lot we were talking about it. We, t we tried to talk about what it was rather than the issue in particular. The culture war of the USSR is what this episode was about. <laughs>
Yeah. You know, I, I, but I think in the end, you, you can't, we couldn't have talked about it because it would have, it would, it, that's a whole fucking podcast itself, you know. It's a yeah. fucking country, which is a superpower that, that you know, defeated the, you know, you could be here forever listing all of it, what it did and what it didn't do. So I don't think that was possible. I think what's more important is, is, is the memory of it and what it means to people in the present and how we interact with what its legacy is. So I, I think that's what we should be talking about because you're not going to be able to fish a history of the fucking USSR into a one-hour podcast, you know? In Soviet Russia, it remembers you. Why are you Japanese? 